Did you know that studies have shown affirmations can profoundly influence your psychological well-being, enhancing self-confidence and reducing anxiety? Here at Positive Birth Australia, we have crafted a 20-minute birth affirmations track filled with soulful, carefully curated affirmations to empower, inspire, and guide you to deeply remember the power you hold within. And to my fellow belly birth mothers, we have created a track specifically for you to honor that all birth is a sacred moment of profound significance. For only $5, you can download and immerse yourself in our affirmations track to transform your mindset in the lead up to birth and during labor, serving as a potent reminder of the inherent power and love you possess. Visit us at www.positivebirthaustralia.com or head to the show notes and follow the link provided to start your journey toward a more empowered birth experience. Welcome to Positive Birth Australia, a podcast created to empower and educate mothers along their own pregnancy journey. Each week, I'll be sharing insightful and inspiring birth stories and advice in the hopes to help you create your own positive birth experience. I'm your host, Sky Marie. Let's get into today's show. Welcome back, everyone. On today's episode, we embark on an exploration into midwifery life and the personal birth experiences of Mayette, a dedicated midwife, clinic owner, and mother of three. Mayette's journey into midwifery began with her studies in the UK, but her calling to this work traces back to her earliest days. Her own birth story resonates with profound significance, a testament to her destiny. Born at home within a bamboo pyramid, guided earthside by her mother's primal wisdom. From a tender age, Mayette embraced the role of her mother's mini doula, witnessing the transformative beauty and vulnerability of birth. Unbeknownst to her at the time, this early experience imprinted deep within her, laying the foundations for her life's purpose. In the footsteps of her lineage, she followed her grandmother's path, weaving herself into the tapestry of midwifery. Mayette returned to Australia after the birth of her first child. The contrast she encountered in the maternity care system ignited a fire within her. She longed for a different approach, a way that honours each woman's unique journey and guides her to reclaim her innate power. In divine timing, Mayette's path led her to co-found It Takes a Village Midwifery, a sanctuary that offers respectful and holistic woman-centered maternity care, cultivating a loving community of women united by their experiences and deep reverence for the miracle of birth. Today, we delve into Mayette's own personal birth stories, the experiences that shaped the way she cared for women in the birth space, and we explore the immeasurable value of a private midwife. Enjoy the episode. Mayette, what a joy it is to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Sky. I've been such a long-time listener. I love your podcast and I'm really excited that you've welcomed me on. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm so excited to be chatting with you today. But to start off the episode, could you just let the listeners know a little bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. Um, so, um, as you said, my name's Mayette. <laughs> um, I am a midwife and I am a mum of three gorgeous, now nearly you know, adult and teenage 
kids. I have two boys and then a girl. Um, and I live in Brisbane and I did my midwifery education in the UK, in Manchester. Um, and I came to Australia in 2007. So I am Australian, but I'm married to an Englishman. And so, yeah, we came back to Australia in 2007 and that was a big, big culture shock. Right. Okay. So is the study over in the UK the same Mm. as Australia? Because I feel like when I'm, when I first met you, I feel like I remember you were doing extra study or something. Uh, look, maybe I I have a bachelor of degree. I have a bachelor degree with honors, so I, I have um, the honors part of it is research that I um, undertook, which is a twenty thousand word dissertation, mm-hmm. and my topic uh, of choice was intimate intimate partner violence and how we. Uh, ask families about intimate partner violence, and just a <laughs> just a note: we don't do it don't do it well. Um, so that was my honours research, and then I did my masters here in Australia, so masters of midwifery, and my uh, research topic was um, qualitative research um, looking at um, traumatic birth. So that was a real. Uh, changed to my heart and my head and helped me um, on my journey to respectful maternity care. Um, And then maybe when we met, I was possibly doing my prescribing course. So in Australia, to be an endorsed midwife, you need to do additional training on, on top of a master's or on top of your bachelor degree um, to do prescribing um, screening and diagnostics. So that's pharmacology and, you know, how to uh, read reports, how to write prescriptions, how to have an understanding of how medications work so that we can have that full scope of caring for families um, in pregnancy and birth and postnatally. Yeah, okay, amazing. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> now let's rewind it back to the beginning. What was the pull for you to be working in the maternity space? Yeah, well, it's kind of wild because when I think about the journey, I kind of feel, and I know that this is uh, some midwives when you when you ask them will will have a similar story, but I feel like I was called to this work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel kind of like I was born to do this work. So it doesn't start just when I was an adult and made that decision. I think... Um, I was born at home. Um, I was born in um, a bamboo pyramid. No um, way. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's amazing. In northern New South Wales. Um, and uh, my mum was supported by her partner. And, um, yeah, she, it was her second birth and it was a free birth. Oh um, so I kind of feel like I was born to do this because of I trust in home birth and I trust in, um, in this process. I, I, I mean, I have to do that because I was, it's my story, right? So it was, it was, I was born into it. So I guess that's the beginning. But uh, when I consciously made a decision to become a midwife was actually after I had my first born. I wanted to um, support people and care for people. Um, my grandma on my mum's side was a midwife. And so when I was a child, I used to watch her. She did uh, pregnancy yoga and she did childbirth education. 
Um, so part of, you know, part of my role is I'm a hypnobirthing Australia practitioner. I'm a spinning babies parent educator. Um, I'm, and I'm a midwife. So we, we, we teach uh, families as well. But I, I think that probably came from, um, watching my grandma taking couples down to her studio out the back and wondering what she was doing with these pregnant people (laughs) um, in that place. And I remember she had a pop-up book, which I wish I had right now, Um, but it was a pop-up book of birth. Oh, you're joking. Yeah, it was wild. And um, I I used to, as a child, like I remember being a seven, eight, nine-year-old and kind of looking at this pop-up book, which was like anatomy and it was like the baby in the womb and things and I was just fascinated by that so um that definitely shaped my interest in this area and I come from a strong family of um women who you know believe in in women and support women we have I have a strong mum a strong midwifery grandma and my aunties um and so I feel like I was kind of shaped and formed throughout my whole life to do this. And I have a pivotal memory also when I was seven, so sh- like forming and shaping me, when my mum had my little sister and um, she wanted my ma- my grandma, sorry, she wanted my grandma to be her midwife and have another home birth after she'd had a free birth with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but my grandma, in, at the time, um, when you got married, you weren't allowed to then be a midwife anymore. Like you won't be able to you, teaching nursing midwifery in my, in my grandma's era. Once you're a married woman, you then didn't work. Um, so she was at home looking after her five kids. So she was out of practice being a midwife. So she didn't feel comfortable to do the home birth. Um, and so my mum had a hospital birth but stayed at home with me and my grandma labouring and then my granddad said, I think it's time <laughs> you went to the hospital. And so I remember kind of doulering my mum in in the, the drive from Harvey Bay, which is where we lived, into Maribor, which is about 40 minutes. So I was like rubbing my mum's back, mm-hmm. telling her she's doing it. Such a great job. That's um, so beautiful. You know, telling her she's strong and that she can do this and keep breathing. And then we, yeah, then we got to the hospital and then she went in and then I played I Spy with my grandma oh, <laughs> who waited gorgeous. out the front. Can I quickly ask, is there a reason why your mum didn't just have another free birth? Um, I think it was, I think it was location. So my mum okay. at the time was, was by herself. And so she didn't have the support except for my grandma. So, and my grandma didn't feel comfortable you know doing it by herself at her home so okay. yeah 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 so you were playing I spy with your grandma yeah and my mum was inside and she was basically fully she did this with all like her first birth she did have a hospital birth and got in there at like nine centimeters said no to the enema the shaving and the routine episiotomy which was standard at the times is, you know, um, the late seventies and then into the eighties when she had her babies with me, she had no intervention. And, um, and with my little sister, she did the same thing. She refused the, uh, routine episiotomy shaving and enema and just had a baby because she was, she was full, you know, she was fully when we got there. So, yeah. 
didn't have time to do that. Yeah, okay. Wow, what an incredible story. I know, it's cool. Huh? <laughs> it's so special. <laughs> so you were definitely born into this for sure. I feel like I was born into it. And look, yeah. you know, consciously, it's not a, not as good a story, but consciously as an adult, um, my sister-in-law, my, my husband's sister who was a, a nurse said to me one day, I think you'd make a great midwife. And I'm like, yeah. And I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it, you know, like I, I wanted to be a mermaid or I wanted to be, a, <laughs> I, I wanted to work um, in the airline industry, which is what I worked at before I became a midwife. And then when she said, I think you'd make such a great midwife, I was like, yeah, why have I never thought about that? And then I went on, on the journey to, to do, to do midwifery. So I did my training in the UK and the education there is really full time for three years. I, um, you had five weeks off in total in a year and the rest of the time you were immersed in either community midwifery which was associated with the hospital so you're still employed by the hospital but you could do uh, home births or you could do um, hospital births and you did the the care was in the community really well accepted really um, supported so GPs in the UK for example don't want a bar of maternity care as soon as you find out you're pregnant and you go to your GP they say go and see the midwives they they come here on a Thursday so we we did our midwifery um, antenatal clinics um, in GPs or at the hospital but in GP clinics or at the hospital and yeah they just as soon as you found out you're pregnant they referred to the midwives because that's the that's the way the system is there. So what is the maternity system like over in the UK in comparison to Australia? Uh, I think the the UK um, maternity system is really different to Australia and that's when I was talking about the culture shock of coming back in 2007 when I was a midwife. Um, I I really couldn't fathom the the way the system was here. So, yeah, in the UK we had... Um, adapted caseload in the community so you would have a caseload of women and you would follow them throughout their pregnancy supporting them pregnancy birth and postnatally um and the midwives in the hospital were also you know the midwives in the community so you were the same and you're accepted and everyone in the uk even like if you think about the community in the in the uk really understand what a midwife is and here in Australia, we have, when we talk about things, we'll say, oh, the nurse that looked after me. It's like, it's not a nurse, it's a midwife. Mm. And here we have such a fear around home birth and we have such a, a, a lack of understanding about the role of the midwife. We're, it's kind of the invisibility of the the midwife. And it's, you know, I've, I've been to university for, well, about seven years. It's the same level of you know, education as someone that is a doctor, but you don't have an understanding about, you know, what our, our role is or our scope is or our capacity. So very different. Yeah. Very okay. different. We'll probably jump into that a little bit deeper later on. But for now, should we talk about your first birth? Yeah. I uh, I have a nearly 21-year-old. No. Uh, you just do not <laughs> seem old enough for a 21-year-old. I definitely have a, a giant man boy <laughs> who's turning 21, yeah. Oh so, gosh. Um, yeah, I was uh, 23 when I gave birth to him. I, my first pregnancy, I had a miscarriage and um, uh, so I've, ha I've had four pregnancies. 
Um, and my my second pregnancy was our beautiful uh, Loch Lomond, Lockie P. Um, and so, yeah, I was 23 and I remember I wrote, uh, you do this for your firstborn, I wrote a diary, I wrote how I was feeling, I wrote my hopes and dreams for him. I wrote a very comprehensive birth uh, preferences and I stand by those birth preferences too today. <laughs> um, I look back on that, yeah, pre-midwife person, and I, I have changed in many ways, but I, in 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 some ways, I I'm, I'm the same person, I think. Um, and so, yeah, I I was uh, 23. I was very excited. I felt very knowledgeable. I'd done. Um, hypnobirthing myself and I'd done also the childbirth education classes that were offered through the hospital and interestingly the midwife that taught me in the hospital ended up being a mentor of mine as a student midwife and she was also the midwife that supported me as he was born so um and so yeah my firstborn was born in the UK and my other two were born in Australia so I have not only my midwifery um education in the UK and then an understanding about the Australian system I also have experienced it as a as a woman both yeah the contrast of both so yeah okay yeah can I ask why do you think it is that when it comes to maternity care that these countries just are not Mm. aligned in the way that they practice. I always find that such a confusing thing to grasp. I think it comes down to the history or the her story of maternity systems. We have a very complex uh, maternity system in Australia with different funding um, options. You've got, you know, federal and then you have state differences. Queensland is the only state that doesn't have... Um, publicly funded home birth um, in Australia. And you also have a very complex uh, system of referral. So you have to see a GP and your GP can provide antenatal care without having extensive training or being specialist in pregnancy like a midwife or an obstetrician is. Um, And they can also get funded by Medicare to provide antenatal care. So there is a bit of a... uh, I guess, a conflict of interest there when you are required to have a referral from a GP who can also provide antenatal care. There's not much of an incentive necessarily for them to do that and they don't have a good understanding, like I said, of the role of the midwife and the the scope of practice. Um, It was a real um, response to New Zealand. Um, So originally New Zealand had a similar system to Australia and the women of New Zealand... Um, plus having, I think, a female prime minister at the time and ministers, MPs who were focused on uniting with women for choice. And so what happened was they put this through the parliament and then I think the medical system thought, well, women aren't going to choose midwives. They're going to want to have doctors being the main carers, the lead maternity carer for pregnancy and uh, they were wrong. And so uh, the majority of women in New Zealand were choosing lead maternity carers when they when this legislation passed, when this funding passed. Um, and Australia had a real knee-jerk reaction to that. And the Australian Medical Association 
um, and lobbying, powerful uh, lobbying, lobbied the government to make it really very hard to access midwifery care as a response. Okay. Yeah. So it's political as always. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's the short-term history. That's not even looking into, you know, when this started, when, you know, the, the 1700s, you know, when when um, obstetricians were barbers. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and they used to have, like, oh propaganda gosh. against, you know, midwives, like they were gin-drinking, um, you know, <laughs> uneducated people that were going to harm children. So, wow, a barber. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Very interesting choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you mentioned earlier that your first birth was the one of the reasons you decided to become a midwife. Should we jump back into that story? Yeah, I think we can learn from every single birth that we have ourselves, but also the births that we see. I have that honour and privilege to, to learn from all the women and the families around me. But I think from my first birth, like I guess my first two births had really different experiences to my third birth and I think I'll get to that. But like my first birth I was excited, I was prepared, Um, I'd done a lot of reading. I had hired my TENS machine which is was a godsend. Um, uh, I think I some of the things that I say to women now uh, as a response to some of the things that occurred, we as midwives have to, um, you know, put our own experiences outside of the birthing space and I have a conscious effort to do that all the time. I go in um, free from any of the experiences I've had just with the wisdom I think that comes with it. Um, but yeah, I woke up at one o'clock in the morning. I was excited. I had my first surge and I was like, oh, this is it. This is labor. So I put my tens machine on. I put my birth playlist in my ears. Um, my husband was on nights. And, uh, so I called him home, um, and said, this is labor, Um, and I was on my birth ball and I was bobbing around doing all the active birth stuff. Um, and then I went in, so this was a a planned hospital birth. I guess there was this unspoken, um, thought that your first birth would be a hospital birth and then home births after that. Mm -hmm. But I don't agree with that now. I'll tell you why later, I guess. (laughs) Um, so I went in at about, uh, six o'clock in the morning and I just wanted someone to say, yes, this is it. You're all good. Um, and the first thing they did when they were kind of checking that I'm in labor is offer a vaginal examination. And I, they said, you're one to two centimeters. (laughs) And I thought that could be disappointing for some people. But for me, I was like, that's exciting. I know that things are changing. Um, and so then I, I went home and I went back home probably about seven o'clock in the morning, something like that. And then with that number in my head, I was like one to two, that means that, you know, could be another (laughs) 10 hours of this. I think it really does change the way you see things when you have numbers, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I went home, kept bobbing around on my ball. And then about an hour and a half later, I thought, stuff this for a joke. I can't do, I can't stay at home doing this. And so literally about an hour and a half after I left the hospital with this number in my head, I went back in, um, you know, and by that point, 
they said, oh, you're seven centimetres. And I was like, okay. Um, but I had a posterior baby. Okay. Um, so I guess all of this was, this is a really positive birth experience, but there are some take-home messages <laughs> from this from this birth. But um, I think after that, the little bit of undermining occurred so I want to know I want everyone to know that words are really powerful um and numbers can influence things yeah so um I had a then a midwife who said to me you've got a posterior baby you're a first-time mum you're probably going to end up having a cesarean section wow okay when I was, this is when I was seven centimeters you're probably going to end up having a cesarean section so I would recommend you have an epidural mm. And I thought, oh, I thought I was doing great. <laughs> I didn't really understand. I, I obviously had a different feeling in my body and a different kind of thought. I thought I was, like, doing really amazingly. And so I asked my husband at the time, I was like, what do you think I should do? Do you think I need an epidural? Do you think I should have an epidural? And he's a man, you know, yeah. and he was like, well, yeah, I mean, I'd probably I'd have one <laughs> okay anyway I just made this decision to go with what the midwife said which influenced me and kind of set me back a little bit really yeah. so I had this epidural um and then about an hour and a half later I was fully dilated and pushing a baby out who wasn't posterior at the time of birth um and yeah I gave birth to him and then you know, the midwife, he was a little bit, I mean, babies at birth aren't pink, right? They're not as soon as they're born, just like pink and screaming. That's what we see on, on TV. That's what we think babies should be like. But, you know, he was a little slow to, um, you know, come into his body. But I knew he was fine. Um, and the midwife reassured my husband, he's okay. And then just rubbed him up. And then he was, he was, he was good. So, yeah. That that birth really for me was, you know, the birth that, you know, made me a mother and the, the baby that made me a mum. And I don't have any negative feelings about the first birth at all. I think on retrospect, I don't think, I think people should trust in people's ability. And if a woman is wanting an epidural or asking for an epidural, then reassure them. If they are not and they feel like they're doing great, just because a baby's in a, in a different position or a position that you feel could be an issue, it doesn't mean it's going to be an issue. Yeah. So that's my take-home message for my first birth. Yeah, I felt good about it. No problems with that. Mm. Yeah. And then after that birth, how long did it take you to feel ready to have baby number two? Well, after my first birth, that's when I was like, I'm going to be midwife and I did a degree. <laughs> so it was definitely at least three years. So my my firstborn was, um, was uh, five years different. So I think, let me do the math. Sorry, the numbers is not my thing. 2002. And then I had um, my second in 2008. So six years. Okay. Yep. I did a degree and I moved country and then I was waiting for my registration in Australia and um, and then I was um, I was pregnant as I started working as a midwife <laughs> uh, in Australia. Yeah, okay. So you were already working in the birth space by this point? Yeah. 
Did yeah. those experiences at all shift the way that you approached your next birth or were you just too busy dealing with the shell shock of moving here? <laughs> uh, I think the culture shock was really uh, in maternity, not obviously in real life. I am a Queensland girl and yeah. tropical fruit and sunshine, they're, they're all, they're all, there's no culture shock there. But yeah. maternity system is very different and I think the way that women and families believe in or approach the the system and their own power I felt I found that Australian women were much more passive and kind of deferring to others I think there's some change that's happening I hope and I see in the women I care for now but I was like oh you're going to go with the flow of this this seems pretty crazy to me because it's like whose flow are you going with if you're going with our flow in the system it's yeah. So I guess when I was looking into where I'd like to work in Brisbane, I was looking at which would be closest to the way I had, you know, worked in the UK. Okay. So I thought, well, a birth centre sounds like it's the best way forward. Um, so I I, I worked um, in the hospital that had a birth centre, except I wasn't allowed to work in the birth centre with low-risk healthy women until I'd worked for three years in the tertiary system with all of the high-risk women or all of the women that we make high-risk. And that didn't make any sense to me. Um, How was that for you to navigate coming from the UK into our system? Was it really difficult to stay quiet about what you were witnessing? Yeah. Because I know from other midwives that it can be really difficult to use your voice. Yeah, I guess my priority is sleeping well at night and remembering why I am doing this. I'm a midwife and I'm a midwife to serve. I'm not a midwife to conform. And so I've never been very good at... um, acquiescing and just going with what like when someone says to me this is what we do here that doesn't make sense to me it has to be evidence-based and and I used to have a saying which was just because it is doesn't mean it should be so I guess it was really hard for me I used to um when I was working in the tertiary hospital I used to look at when I'm on the postnatal ward the 30 women that were in in the rooms and the beds in the postnatal ward and I used to play this terrible thing where I'd look at who was here and who got through unscathed so who got through without having a cesarean section if that wasn't what they wanted because most women uh, are actually aiming for a physiological birth Um, who didn't have an instrumental forceps or a a vontus or um, lay terms vacuum Um, who didn't have an episiotomy Um, who didn't have their baby um, away from them into the special care nursery or the NICU. And it was getting to the point where sometimes I would look at those postnatal families and there wouldn't be one person that hadn't had something occur. Mm. And I didn't, that didn't make any sense to me because in the UK we used to kind of go, if this has occurred, just say it's an emergency cesarean section, how can we, how can we learn from this? What can we do differently about this? Um, and, and that was every, every situation. And, you know, we need to have medically indicated interventions, um, that women feel good about and accepting of because there's a need rather than, you know, 
time being a factor or we create this with this cascade of interventions. So so that was, I guess, the postnatal ward. And I guess the other thing was when I was working nights, I was talking to women in the middle of the night and lots of women here and there were crying and asking what did I do wrong or what could I have done differently or why did this happen? And that really affected my soul and I just didn't feel like it was right. And I would say to them, this is not you, you know, this is this is this is what we this is what we're doing. This is what we do. And it felt like I was picking up the pieces on the postnatal ward and I just couldn't do it anymore. So my aim was to do the three years that was required to then work in the birth centre with low risk, healthy women having water births, continuity of care. And I just couldn't I couldn't do it because of these stories and because of you know, how it felt. I remember being heavily pregnant and coming off a night shift and they did an impromptu appraisal with me after my night shift and they said, Mayette, we think you're a lovely midwife. We think you're really good with the women. Um, but, you know, you are making some of the staff feel like you're questioning pra- practice and why we're doing things. And I'm like, it's trying to understand and I don't understand. And so then I went and did my Masters of Midwifery because the women's experiences were telling me that there was a high level of traumatic birth and I wanted to understand how we could um, provide care that wasn't going to traumatise women. It didn't feel okay to me that we have, you know, 30% of women leaving birth with PTS symptoms and then even looking at, you know, PTSD, so actually diagnose PTSD as the same as war. Oh, my gosh, that is just so wrong. So were there any other midwives on your ward that had a similar mindset to you or were majority of them just kind of, you know, they've been in that system from the get-go so they're desensitised? Um, I think a lot of the UK midwives were very similar to me. Mm-hmm. A lot of the New Zealand midwives were very similar to me. I think when you've seen it in a different way, you can't do unsee it. it. You can't, yeah, you can't unsee it. And I think that was the same with the the research. When I listened to women's voices, when I interviewed those women and some dads as well, um, you can't unhear the stories you can't unhear what occurred and it's not the outcome necessarily it's the way we treat people it's the disrespectful maternity care um the isolation the feelings of being alone the feelings of being you know some people were talking about being treated like a dog or being treated like a piece of meat or you know just a vagina with some of the the language i think when we hear these stories or when we see these things and also when we see the alternate, which is like this is a better way, when you know a better way, how can you do things that you know feels harmful or is harmful? And do you think that comes down to it being a time and money thing within our system? Yeah, I think it's complicated. I think it's uh, societal ideas, you know, when, you know, the invisibility of midwifery, um, the political um, stance, the very complicated hierarchical structure of maternity care system, our education that helps student midwives, you know, conform or question and you know even looking at 
student midwives and newly graduated midwives, they have like such a level of moral distress that they either leave or they conform. That's their only choices. So you might have gone into midwifery for the right reasons, but it's it's very hard to go against, you know, that. Yeah, yeah. That actually brings to mind um, one of my clients. She's She works quite closely with doctors in her field and um, her and I were talking one day about birth. She's had two incredible home births, but coming from a medicalized background, she knows the system in and out and she was talking about, sorry, we were talking about why doctors are so quick to intervene and why you can sometimes feel, or it looks like there is a lack of care towards their Mm. patient. And she gave me a really interesting perspective on it. So she'd had a similar conversation with one of her doctor friends. And he basically said that when he entered his studies, all of the doctors that he studied with had sort of the same mission at heart, you know, which was to help people. Mm. Um, But once they were practicing, they all quickly realized how strict it is. And if you question some of the procedures in place, Mm. then you come up against like insurance issues where you won't have those securities. So Mm. he basically said that, um, yeah, they get into it for the right reasons and then feel handcuffed in a way to the system. Yeah. Obstetricians are definitely not the enemy. I think everybody goes into this wanting to do, you know, yeah. And we have, you know, the principles that we we are taught, which is non-maleficent, so do no harm. Mm. Beneficence means that you should be doing good. Um, autonomy means that the person that you're caring for, if they are an, a compass mentis adult, which all pregnant women are, unless they've been deemed, you know, not, have the right to self-determination and autonomy. And if you know those things, you cannot do anything to a person without them having, you know, full, you know, full body yes to whatever you're offering. And that comes only with having information about what is why is this a benefit to them why is this a risk to them whatever we're offering is an offering is there an alternative and and what happens with time so i i believe obstetricians gps midwives all of these people are doing this you know job for the right intentions but we get lost along the way and that's that's i guess the 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 problem isn't it it's Mm. Um, but you know, I think when we look at the different models of care, if you think about private midwifery, we look after as a full-time midwife, three to four women a month. So they are our three to four women, our three to four families. We know the families really well. We know their history. We know their hopes. We know what would disappoint them. Um, we look at what is an individual risk, um, or an individual chance, you know, Whereas I think when you're looking at private obstetrics, you don't look after three to four people a month. You may look after up to 20 to 40 people a month. And so if you're looking after that number, how can you be with 20 to 40 people and be with them during their labour, support them in physiological birth? You don't have the time. There's no way you can look after that volume of people. So you have to schedule in inductions of labour. You have to schedule in cesarean sections. You have to... Uh, time manage and I guess if you're a surgeon you're good at surgery you know Um, I don't have that in my toolkit I don't want that in my toolkit but I don't have that in my toolkit so I have to look at how does physiology work best and how can I support 
you know, normal. It's in, in my registration, it's in my requirements to support normal and physiological birth. Yeah, I love that. So jumping back to your story, you had completed your time in the hospital setting and had decided that that was not the place for you? Uh, I ended up in the birth centre because I thought that was a a valid choice. I think a lot of women think a birth centre is going to be give them the the better outcome and and continuity Mm -hmm. um, of midwifery care. Um, I also... Sky didn't have a really good understanding of home birth in Australia. I wanted to have a home birth with my second and my third. I didn't have a good understanding. I didn't know where to find a home birth midwife. I was not in um, in the know, I guess, about how to do that. So I couldn't. I didn't find any home birth midwives um, when I started um, as a midwife. Uh, I was twenty weeks. So I hadn't been paid as a midwife. I was waiting for my registration. It took ages. Um, so I didn't have any money was the, was a, was a barrier and I didn't know how to access a home birth midwife. I did end up having one of my colleagues who, who I worked with in the, in the hospital. She's like, I've done some home births. Would you like me to be your midwife? And I ended up hiring her, but then I got a place in the birth center. It's a ballot. So then I got a place in the birth center and I just thought, naively and again I didn't know the system so well um at that point I just thought that was going to be a a good second best because I didn't have any money so that was that was part of my decision making yeah so should we go through your next birth experience yeah my birth with my second was um that was I guess I assumed that I would have an easier birth second time round. I thought it would be a, as positive a birth experience as my first. I thought it would be somewhat shorter and I thought about how strong and capable I am and it didn't kind of work out that way. Um, my second birth was a traumatic birth and I think this really helps me in many ways having three completely different birth experiences as well as my knowledge experience of being a midwife to you know help women um better so um with that birth I went into spontaneous labor I did make some mistakes and I'm gonna just say (laughs) I've learned so much from my second birth um so when it comes to the end of your pregnancy and you're feeling like you want to have a baby and you're wondering why you haven't gone into spontaneous labor i'm just going to say from my heart don't take castor oil (laughs) i should have known better i was a midwife (laughs) but midwives are women too and they get frustrated at the end i would i recommend to all my women and anyone who's ever been uh, in my care would (laughs) would know that i'm like (laughs) it's all about the headspace the baby will choose the right time to be born (laughs) so learn from my mistakes don't do it yourself that's my (laughs) um so i i just sat on the toilet for quite a while and then i did go into spontaneous labor i guess the issue with that is i don't we don't know what starts labor we still don't know with all of the evidence that we have and all the knowledge that we have we have theories about what actually you know triggers labor but you need more oxytocin receptors they need to be you know really voluminous on your uterus we don't know when that occurs but we do know the difference between one day to the next the day of birthing you'll have like hundredfold you know 
uh, or more oxytocin receptors on your uterus, which means we're more receptive to oxytocin as it pulsates out of our, our brain. Um, we also, you know, need to know that the baby's ready. And I, I made that mistake because my baby was not in a good position. Um, my baby did not have a flexed head and that's one of the most important things is flexion. Um, but I was an impatient woman and I, I chose to have castor oil. So yeah, I did sit on the toilet for quite a while. Then I went into spontaneous labor and it didn't feel right to me in my body. And it felt really intense from the beginning. And, um, I, I called up the birth center and I said, I'm coming in. I knew I was in active labor. Um, uh, but it felt just so intense, the sensations in my pelvis, the sensations in my lower back. Um, I had another posterior boy, um, and I kept on saying, this is, doesn't feel right. I was upright my whole, my whole birth. I was, you know, doing hip dips. I was having my husband squeeze my hips. I was having you know, lower back compressions. I was using heat packs. Um, I was using a TENS machine and it, and I, it didn't feel right. Um, and then my midwife, who I think also assumed that I was going to have a really quick labour, um, you know, came in and she left me at a really pivotal time because she'd been there for a long time with me. So I can't remember the hours exactly, but I know it was like, you know, middle of, just say it was mid 10 o'clock at night that I started having surges and I went in, you know, a few hours, some hours later in active labor. And then she left at about seven o'clock in the morning. Okay. And she didn't say goodbye. She just left. And then I had another midwife. So this is continuity of care in a birth center as well. So I should have had my known people around me. And another midwife came in and I remember her being really soft and nice and she was speaking so pleasantly to me. And it was confusing to me because, again, I thought I was doing really well. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, she was doing some rebozo with me, so she was doing some sifting of my abdomen. And then she said, I think we should get um, a doctor in to come and talk to you. And I didn't understand why. Um, I didn't accept any vaginal examinations. I was just working through my labour. Um and then because I was a midwife at this place, they sent a consultant in and he didn't talk to me. He talked to my husband and said, I think we need to go down to theatre for a cesarean section, but we can try to do a forceps birth if, if she's fully dilated. And my husband, knowing me, said, I'm sorry, you're going to have to talk to my wife mm -hmm. and you're going to have to talk directly to her if you're offering anything that's about her body. And then he didn't. He walked out of the room and then a registrar um, said to me, you know, are you, I, think we sh I think you should have an epidural. I think we're going to go down to theatre and do a trial of forceps. Mm -hmm. And I guess at that point, when you're taken out of your zone um, and you're having these big words that felt pretty 
Like it was the last thing I wanted as a woman to have a cesarean section, um, especially after having a vaginal birth first time round and feeling positive about that experience. So I was then fearful and scared, I guess. And I think at that point, because of the adrenaline that was happening in my body, I was like, if you're if you're thinking about doing that, you need to get me an epidural like this second because I was then feeling every single thing in my body and I yeah it was it was intense yeah and I guess then you know the other thing was these are my colleagues and you know they put me on a bed they wanted me to be on my back to be transported to the theater I was fully dilated and they wanted me to be transported to the theater on the back on my back on the bed and I was like, that's not going to happen. I've been active, actively moving around this whole time. So I was then on the bed but on all fours. And I just remember the faces. So we moved from the birth centre into the theatre. And I remember the faces of my midwifery colleagues as I'm on all fours, on a bed, moving past the, the birth suite desk and yeah i'll never i'll never forget that it was just yeah it was and you know some of my midwifery colleagues after that have said the look on your face i mean i remember the look on their face which was just like pure i don't know sympathy i'm not sure but um yeah that's a picture in my mind the only thing about that birth that actually was traumatic for me was not the outcome it was it was the way i was spoken to so it was i felt a little bit well, I felt completely left alone by my midwife who I, I, I would not, you know, I would not want a woman to feel kind of abandoned. Um, and then when I went into the theatre, the two people were theatre nurses actually that, that made it traumatic. And I remember as I was sitting, I was, you remember, I'm fully dilated, I'm having really regular surges every couple of minutes. I feel like there's a head really deep in my pelvis. Um and I remember while I was having a surge, the, the, the theatre nurse was asking me to, she was grabbing my shoulders and trying to push me into this curled up cat position to arch my back out. And I just put my hand up and I said, you'll have to give me a minute because I'm having a surge. Um, and she tried to grab me again and like person handle me manhandle me um into this position and I and I had to physically put my hand up onto her hand and say please give me a minute and you know don't touch me at that moment um so that was one thing just feeling like I was just there for I guess you know positioning and then the other theater nurse said to me you need to stop crying Oh, wow. So harsh. You need to stop crying. And I looked at her and I was just so full of, um, you know, I know what it's right. I know what's right in this situation. You need compassion. You need kindness. You need time. There's There's no rush with anything that was happening at this time. Like if I had a baby vaginally sat in a curled up cat position, what would be the harm of that? Um, so I just kept pushing and I kept on working through it. And so I said to her, why do I need to stop crying with tears running down my face? (laughs) And she said, the, the doctor can't do his job while you're, while you're doing this. And she was talking about the anesthetist 
And so I've got this sterile field behind my back and I put my hand underneath the sterile thing to not make it sterile because I'm a midwife and I know better. (laughs) And I turned around to him and I said, I do hope that you've got the experience to be able to do this with a woman who's fully in labour and upset. And he said, yeah, yeah, it's no problem. And so I turned back to her and I said, he said it's no problem. Oh. And I bawled my eyes out all the more. So I just felt like I had to fight just to be treated, yeah. you know, with kindness and compassion. And then I went into theatre and I just kept pushing. I just kept pushing um, this baby down as much as I could because I was just listening to my body, which is never wrong, I don't think. Yeah. Um, and then because I'd done that continued work with that, you know, birth, birth centre through to the theatre, he offered to do a – well, he just said I'm doing a vaginal examination. He didn't offer. But he did a vaginal examination and he said the baby has moved down. Um, I don't need to do a cesarean section. Are you happy for me to give you an episiotomy? and do forceps and I said just don't cut me there and then cut me up here like just make a decision and I kind of gave my power away at that point and then he was born and he had a deflexed head and he had a very good size head and I just probably needed time the problem that w- that comes with forceps or or you know a vacuum or von Tuss is that you don't know what would have happened after that his heart rate was fine the whole time there was no issues with the baby it was just a time factor and so I don't know if I would have had a baby half an hour later an hour later like you just we don't have that information so that's the kind of thing that comes with you know, what I, I felt was a traumatic birth was the, the things that people said to me and also the, the what-ifs or the not knowing, like I don't have that. And so that's what I've had to work through after that birth. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. So do you feel on reflection that maybe the castor oil was the beginning of the mm. unravelling, for lack of a better word? Yeah, and look, it can work really, it can work fine, like, theoretically it it did put me into spontaneous labor but if it's like we don't know what why labor hasn't started Mm. and what I what I do know with Noah is that he had a 38.5 centimeter head circumference and I and what he needed was was time and he needed you know support without striving striving is never helpful um any form of natural induction is still an induction it's still an intervention it's still something whether it's done you know in a hospital or if it's you know done by yourself to your (laughs) to your body you know so you know if it if it helps you feel good about things um things like acupuncture you know things like positional things if those things help you feel good about you know, trusting the process at the end of your pregnancy, then that's great. Um, if you're doing anything that is taking away from your trust um, and your the, your ability to have a physiological birth, which it did for me, um, then it then it is then it's you have it's okay that you have to just work through you know why you did that and and how that made you feel and and if that if that had an impact on your labour and how that that worked out but there's no for me like you know I also have another saying which is there's no winning or losing in birth you know um 
So, yeah, I think if it makes you feel good, great. If it helps you trust the process, great. But for me, you know, with after this experience, you know, I'm a spinning babies practitioner, I'm all about flexion. I'm all about, like, supporting babies so they can be an active participant in this because they are. It's not just you. Yeah. When you say flexion, does that mean when their heads move? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's talking about tilting. So the ideal is to have the baby's chin on its chest. Right. Because my twin, Luca, was brow presentation. Yeah. So that's an extended um, head presentation. So you've got flexion, which is chin on the chest. And you can't see me, but I've got my chin on my chest (laughs) at the moment. yeah, so that gives the smallest diameter of the, the baby's head. But, you know, sometimes labor does that. Like when the baby's head touches on the pelvic floor, that helps the baby tilt its head down. But if the baby's in a neutral position, so if you're looking straight ahead, then you're thinking about the, the diameter between the the brow, so where, where your hairline is, um, and the bony part on the back of your the baby's head. That's the, the, the widest diameter. Um, and, and if you're thinking about how to encourage and support that, it's not forcing a baby down by induction of labour or deep squats or, you know, doing circles on a birth ball or, you know, things like that. It's actually about giving baby space by, um, you know, helping the baby flex by things like forward-leaning inversions where you're helping the baby just have some space, so tilting the baby up, to, and then they want to put their head down. They want to put their chin on their chest. So um, sometimes there's other things that are at play in that. But, you know, they are they are an active participant in it. Right, okay. And so when you said that your son had a deflexed head, what does that mean? Um, so deflexed head means if you are looking up to the ceiling. Right. Yeah, so if you're thinking about you know, the pelvic brim, which is kind of, um, if you think about that as a straight horizontal line, and it isn't that, but I'm just trying to visually show you on a, on a, a podcast that's not got visuals. <laughs> um, you, if you put your head on a hand on your forehead, if you put your hand on your forehead and you put your hand on that bony part on the back of your head, that is a wider diameter than if you put your hand on like the top of the back of your head. That's like a smaller diameter. Gotcha. Yeah. So attitude of flexion is is a really good thing to, you know, without striving, uh, support. Yeah. Okay. And so this is just a question for myself, but do you see many babies being born without their chin on their chest or are most born in that position? Yeah, by that point, the, the the presenting part is going to be the smallest diameter. But babies are, are wild and they do whatever they want to do. And, again, uh, pel- pelvises or, you know, uh, everybody's pelvis is, is unique. So we used to, in our training, say that there's four different kinds of pelvis. Well, that's not true. Um, and one of, uh, one of our midwifery colleagues talks about, you know, pelvises are like clouds. That's how unique they are. So we've got the unique diameters of babies' heads. We've got the unique way that they navigate through the birth path. We've got the pelvic floor that helps the baby with flexion. Um, We have, you know, everyone's pelvis is different, so they know the lay of the land. It's just, you know, time is usually the thing. So time, I have a saying, which is time is irrelevant. Um, And as long as a baby is working well through labour and as long as a woman in her headspace and her energy levels is 
able to continue to choose, um, it doesn't really it doesn't really matter. Like I think I had a beautiful posterior first baby. I had a second one that maybe if time was on my side, I would have had another, you know, vaginal birth that didn't require assistance, but I'll never know that information. And then I had a, a third birth after that that was uneventful and, and reaffirming in all things. Yeah. So take us through that space in between your second and third baby. Were you still working at the birthing centre? I was still working in the tertiary hospital doing my time needed to do three years to be able to get into the birth center so I wasn't working in the birth center um but yes I was working night shifts looking after a newborn um supporting women and um I am a midwife and I do know better so there's a couple of lessons here um breastfeeding is not an ideal contraception so I have my last two children um, are 17 months apart and I conceived while I was breastfeeding uh, fully. <laughs> um, yeah, so my my last baby, my daughter, um, was born 17 months afterwards while I was still working, yeah, in the hospital system. But I was doing my master's um, talking to families about traumatic birth. So that was what I was doing. Um and uh, so her birth, I, I don't know what to say about it to be truthful. So I did everything as, you know, I learned a lot from my, my second birth and my first birth and I was, you know, spending lots of time in good positions. I was doing that with my second, you know, pregnancy as well. So, um, but I was always hopeful and I was, you know, well-read and I used to, you watch a lot of birth videos and I did my hypnobirthing um, um, practice to affirm any negative thoughts that I was feeling that would take away from me having a positive birth this time around. Um, and I had a relatively, so I went into labour, had the surges, stayed at home, asked my mum to come and look after the boys and then I rang my midwife who was a great midwife in my third birth. Um, She had done home births before but she was working in the birth centre. So I went back to the same place um, hoping for a different outcome and I got a different outcome and partly that's, you know, because of the work that I did, the um, counselling that I had um, and then I guess the other thing is the midwife that I had was was great as well. So there's there's heaps of factors that, that came into play there. And I rang her up and I said, you'd better get that pool run. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm only about 15 or 20 minutes away from this place. But the, being in the car and leaving my home, as many women will tell you, is, was the the hardest part of of, of any labour. So not being able to sit in a car, those awful, you know, the lights along the highway to get to a place were just like flashing my eyes the whole time. It was terrible. Um, But when I went in there, my midwife was like, um, I said, you don't have time to do anything. And she says, can I just have a feel of your abdomen? And I said, yeah. 
she wanted to work out the position. That's important, I guess. Um, and then she'd run the, the bath, the pool for me, and I got into the pool and about 25 minutes later I birthed her oh. in my hands and in the water. Wow so beautiful what was that moment like for you considering it was the first time Mm. you had ever brought your own baby up to your chest which is so special yeah yeah I you know like people talk about it being a healing birth I think I'd done the work um Mm. in in my healing in the pregnancy um and I always have had this way of kind of you know seeing each pregnancy and birth as a as a new story um it was it was beautiful and it was empowering. And that birth, like on contrast, look at the three different births that I personally have had, let alone all of the women, you know, out there that have had. It I I didn't feel pain with that birth. I felt tightening, like real like intense giant rubber band pulling back on my abdomen sensations. But it felt good and it felt positive and felt like something that I could work through I had many reasons to doubt but I didn't feel that in my head and in my heart it just felt really um right and good and something that I could work through um I remember the moment when I felt the 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 wonderful stretch I've always really enjoyed the pushing phase I don't know why some people don't but it feels like it's really working like my body's working and I and I'm I'm doing it like I'm an active participant in it um and I really loved that with her and my first birth as well I loved I love that but you know having her on my chest she had a really short cord and I was it was a water birth so I didn't have this beautiful time you know sat in the pool you know, with her, you know, floating around. You see these beautiful birth videos where she's like just wafting around, just gazing into each other's eyes. I could feel the cord pulling up um, as she was born. So I had to stand up, you know, straight away so that she was out of the water. Okay. <laughs> and I had to sit on the side of the this hard pool. Um, but then, yeah, I was just, I, I went home after a couple of hours and it just felt, yeah, elated. So it was a really affirming thing for me. But I, I appreciate the the difficulty in my other journeys yeah. because that really helps me empathise and problem solve and support, you know, women in their own journeys. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And what a valuable tool to have, that ability to be able to relate on that level, you know. Yeah. I would love to now chat a little bit about your incredible midwifery care clinic with the wonderful Meg called It Takes a Village Midwifery, which I'm sure a lot of my listeners are familiar with that name, having had so many of your wonderful mamas on the show. Um, How did that journey manifest within your own story? Yeah, well, I think um, my experience working in the hospital was I don't. I can't do this, and I don't want to do this anymore. So that's what led me to do my masters. And interestingly, in my third pregnancy at 37 weeks, I had an interview at 37 weeks for a lecturer role. So I became a unit. Well, 
the person that hired me, she was like, I was hoping that you'd have a baby in my office <laughs> um, because she's a midwife as well. Um, I didn't do that. But then she rang me up about a week later. So I was 38 weeks pregnant with my third baby. And she's like, I know that this is a bad midwife thing to do, but I'd really like to hire you and wondering if you could start. And I said, I cannot start working at 38 weeks pregnant. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> so I went and taught at university when – Emily was five months old and, yeah, so I, I worked at universities teaching the next generation of student midwives because I thought that's what uh, that's what would change the world. It's more complicated than that. But, yeah, so I've taught at three different universities um, the next generation of student midwives. And some of those midwives now are great midwives that are working in private practice or they're working in MGPs, midwifery group practice is what that stands for, mm -hmm. um, and have got, you know, just such strong philosophies. Um, and I think the reason that I came back to home birth was because I just missed birth. Mm. So teaching I love, um, but I love I love building relationships with families and I love witnessing the miracle and sacredness of birth so the first home birth I did in Australia was um with one of my student midwives who was then a midwife and she had her first born at home with me in water um she paid me by buying me equipment for home birth so she bought me my first Doppler in Australia and she bought me my neonatal resource equipment mm -hmm. um, that I uh, still have with me my Doppler just died a couple of weeks ago so I've had to get a new one so I've had oh. some loss about that but that's okay oh um, yeah that's like a keepsake I, right I've definitely kept it I can't throw it out I don't know if I'll frame it and write how many families I've supported yes. with it I don't know love that <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah and so I I have been doing births alongside lecturing. I don't. I now no longer lecture because I'm I'm full time. It takes a village midwife and and director. So, um, I um, we opened. I opened a clinic, um, and that was really beautiful to support so many women. And then one of the um, midwives. Um, came and she, when she was a graduate midwife, Meg, um, she came and, um, you know, I, we basically were a team since probably probably 2015. And um, so she would come along to home births with me and she had a home birth her, herself and she had a, a free birth herself. So she would come along um, and just be my, be my support and then, when she ended up doing her endorsement, we joined forces and she's always had the, the right heart and the dedication um, and the drive to, to do this. And she's just been the right person for me to, to navigate through this with. So, yeah, we've been in our clinic space in Kenmore for three years, but we've been working alongside each other for many more years than that. So our, our real plan was to have a safe place for community and um, our, our village um, to connect with each other. We only work with midwives that are philosophically aligned. Um, and yeah, it's just it's just been a joy to serve our community. Yeah.
I mean, I've seen you both in the birth space mm. together, so I can say with absolute certainty that you guys are the ultimate dream team. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we just, we love working together and we don't have to talk anymore. We just, yeah. you know, we just, it's like in sync and symbiotic. But all of our midwives, so we have midwives now who, um, who are same philosophy, same heart, same, you know, real strong understanding of women's choice mm. um and we have midwives at the gold coast and we have midwives in brisbane and we they're all gorgeous like much nicer than meg and i we keep on <laughs> we keep on joking it's like you know <laughs> they've got such beautiful hearts so yeah we love our midwives and we want to grow those midwives we want to see healthy happy families yeah. that's yeah. And when you first started working in the birth space, was there this moment of like pure clarity where you realized like this is where it's at, this is where I'm meant to be? Yeah, I kind of feel like it was, you know, again, what I was born to do. I know that's sad to say, but it just feels right. Mm. It feels right to have women be the lead and have us be like guides mm. to support them. Yes, we can do clinical things. Um, yes, we can, you know, have emergency measures. We can, we can do those things. We have those skills, but, you know, being guided by women, um, and, you know, walking alongside them is, is the way all midwifery should be. And I, I stand by that. It doesn't matter what the setting is. It should be, um, you can't do anything to a person without them having an enthusiastic yes. So anyone's thoughts or fears when we're talking about the medico-legal side of things, seeing them, uh, seeing, you know, women as other or seeing women as a threat to your practice, uh, it doesn't make any sense to me. If you build relationship, there's going to be less trauma. And if you build relationship, they and women are not a they're not a threat to you. They are, you know, they can be lifelong friends and they can also be your biggest asset because if you listen to women, you can be guided really strongly with what is actually happening. So yeah. Yeah. As you were talking, I was reflecting on the first time that I met you and Meg in the birth space at my niece's birth um, and how I was still pregnant with the twins. Mm. Um, so I had a very strong trust in birth by that stage, but I'd never witnessed it. So um, I did find myself constantly looking over at you and Meg, mm. you know, for that silent reassurance that everything was okay. Yeah. Um, and I remember particularly afterwards when um, I was reflecting I remember the awe I felt, not mm. only for my sister-in-law, obviously, but yeah. for you and Meg also and the calm, peaceful, safe energy that you provided that space and everyone that was in it. It was, yeah, it was really powerful. Yeah, I love that, Sky. Yeah, look, we we have to take our own stuff and put it at the door. We have to do the work whenever we enter. So I have a, you know, I have a meditate and a pray along the way to birth because I want good things for that family. It's not my birth. It's something that they're going to remember for the rest of their lives. Um, and it birth matters. It's important. So, you know, we, we come in with trust. We come in with, you know, looking objectively at what we're provided with. What is the information that is here? And is it actually an issue? If it's not, keep calm and carry on, you know. So, no fear, no fear, um, but we have the the tools if we need to. So a lot of the time when we're at a birth, we look like we're doing 
nothing um <laughs> you know but in the best I can way, tell you <laughs> yeah we're just you know encouraging words here and there some supportive touch you know we have the wisdom to be able to like you know help mums and babies but you know like sometimes like birth is is so unique and you know, if we're seeing things looking slightly different, we have the ability to kind of bring that back in. Is it normal? Can we make it normal? If we can't make it normal, then what is the go from least interventive, you know, to sometimes we need to do emergency measures. And and those things, I want women to feel like they um, know, you know, that those things occurred with them, not at them or to them. And um, that they don't leave birth kind of going, maybe if I had to just try this other thing. Like, well, yeah, sometimes it's like, you know, whispering something in someone's ear. Sometimes it's just encouraging them. And sometimes it's, you know, positional things that we can work with. And sometimes, you know, I don't, I don't want them to look back on their birth and go, uh, I don't want them to have if, if only I did this or if only I tried this. Like I want them to know wholeheartedly in their body that, if there was a need to transfer or if there was something that we needed to occur, that we have that relationship that they know that it was valid, like a true indication, a true need, because our whole aim is undisturbing birth. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. That brings me to my next question. Um, I often get very similar feedback when speaking about home birth with people that are not involved in the birth space, but are also still very heavily influenced by that fear-based narrative. Mm. Um, And the biggest concern, obviously, is, you know, potential dangers and, you know, what happens if something goes wrong? Mm. Um, And I always give the same answer, that you guys can handle most situations and at the very least facilitate a transfer. But, of course, I'm just a podcast host. So (laughs) as a practising home birth midwife, what would actually happen in a situation like this? Yeah, I mean, we pick up on things when they're like a little ripple before they become, you know, a tsunami, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, So we know women really deeply and I think that's the safest way. Like we know their history, we know, you know, everything about them medically um, and we do a lot of the work in the pregnancy. So we have these, you know, hour-long, hour-and-a-half long appointments so we get to know them really deeply on a on a medical on a physical on an emotional on a psychological um note so when we do that work in the pregnancy I know what this woman wants I know what is normal for her that doesn't feel right to me so it's there's your intuition so that that's something um we bring equipment so the things we don't have at a home is we don't have a theater so only the situations that would require a theatre, which is a true need for a cesarean section or a true need for forceps or if we're talking about suturing, that's a that's a theatre for third or fourth degree tears. Okay. Um, all those other things we have in our hands so we can do a lot with our hands. So that can be, you know, if there's a, an emergency like a shoulder dystocia, we have the skills and the our hands to help rotate a baby um if a baby needs resuscitation we have oxygen and we have neonatal resuscitation equipment at home we also have a maternal mask if there's a need for bleeding um we bring a whole birth kit you know we bring medication for blood loss so we bring syntocin on 
we bring Sintametrin and we bring Mesoprostol. So they're three different types of medication that we can use in, in the case of a postpartum hemorrhage. Um, and we also have our hands in that situation as well, so rubbing a fundus, which is the top of the uterus, up as needed. Um, we can help birth a placenta if that needs to happen. But our default mode is, like I said, looking like we're not doing anything and allowing a woman to birth her placenta and birth her baby in her power. Um, we also have big conversations with women throughout the pregnancy on our reasons to transfer. So, you know, um, if there is a, a true indication. So there are some things that we can't control. Um, so if a person has... Uh, cholestasis or if they have which is a liver um, dysfunction that is a true need um, if we have uh, preeclampsia um, which is not just a high blood pressure or not just you know a headache or not just some of these symptoms like upper um, abdominal pain on the right under the ribs it's actually diagnosed by bloods that are not normal and that is is indicating that there's a multi-organ uh, involvement. So we talk about these reasons to transfer. There are things that we definitely can do and there's things that we would say it's actually safest when we're looking at that picture that we would have a, a planned hospital birth so we can access those things as needed. Yeah. Is there a requirement for women in your care to have like a certain amount of blood works or scans, for example, mm. um, or do you sort of leave all of that side of things up to the mother? Yeah, so every midwife is different with what they with what they would be feel comfortable with. I think for me it's like we're looking at everything is an offering. So I, I would say to women, don't say yes to everything and don't say no to everything. Like let's talk about the benefits and the risks of everything that we offer and why, how that will be helpful to them or not. Um, so, yeah, the the majority of uh, women are happy to look at their bloods because that's about what's going to prepare them, you know, in the best place nutritionally for birth. And also let's not forget that important postpartum period when you're breastfeeding, when you're healing and recovering. Like sometimes we can go, we can get through birth feeling fine, but then the postnatal period you can feel really depleted. So I think lots of women are, are very happy to have bloods um i just would like to have a conversation with everybody and build things based on relationship so i say to the people that i care for i'm never going to use your information for evil yeah. i'm only going to use it for good so you don't have a you, there's no need to fear uh me or see me as a person that's going to like oh well now that you've had that glucose tolerance test now you have this like it, it it's like what is this offering and why is that helpful to you or not? And what do you want to do with that? And and let women be the the true decision makers in 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 all things. Yeah, I love that. I just want to before we wrap up, I wanted to backtrack a little bit um, and ask you a couple of questions that I had written down from earlier. One of them was, what was it like returning to work after experiencing some of the traumas and the lack of compassion from the employees during that second birth? I think it just really encouraged me to be a better midwife. Like it encouraged me to, you know, do the work so that I could be a whole person to support people better. Yeah. Like it did, it didn't make me sad. It made me determined. Yeah. It just made me determined because I know that there's a better way. 
Um, and it, it just strengthened my, you know, wanting to have women be at the centre, never feel like this again. And so I guess when that, that theatre nurse was, when I said to her, he says he can do this with me crying, um, she came up and apologised to me afterwards, after the after Noah was born. And I said, that's okay, just never talk to a person like that again. So I feel like it just strengthened me, even in that moment when I could have felt really vulnerable and deplete, you know, like worthless. Mm-hmm. It made it it drove me. It drove me to to I know what's right and I know how women should be treated. And I hope that I helped her to you know, just at least think about it, you know, to not do that to another person because, you know, the psychological and emotional is as important as the physical. So mm. I felt okay about that because it was like I, w- I am determined to to make things better. Yeah, I love that response. And you said that you also did um, some counselling after that experience. Was there anything in particular that really helped you during the processing of that? Yeah, I went to um, birth trauma um, sessions, which was with um, Debbie Gould, who's a midwife who is um, has written a book called How to Heal a Bad Birth. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, so she does she um, she does birth trauma counselling, and then um, I went to a, a psychologist as well for that was just for life stuff really but yeah did both (laughs) (laughs) and was it really helpful yeah I did I did find it really helpful and also like body work as well like somatic um somatic things so like I did something called EFT which is like tapping and women can do that within their pregnancy and they can do that in birth I've seen women do that in labor um so that was that was really helpful because your body has memories as well as as well as your mind Mm. And I did lots of writing about it. I did some, you know, like I wrote out um, in How to Heal a Bad Birth, it talks about writing out your birth um, storyline and then how you felt at each of those moments. And so then you can get real clarity about what it actually was that made it feel like that in your body and in your mind. Mm. Mm. Last question was, was there any particular resources like books or courses that you found really helpful along your journey? Yeah, the books that I used and that I found really helpful was Birthing uh, From Within. Um, That was really good. I I really loved the Down to Earth Birth book. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, I think for women, which is different to me because I already had that background kind of knowledge, um, Sarah Buckley's um, book as well is great. Yeah, Yeah, I love that book. Well, what a phenomenal episode we've had today. Thank you so much, Mayette, for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom and your incredible mind with us. I feel truly honoured to have you on. Love it, Sky. I have so loved. I could rant and chat for ages, <laughs> but I hope it's given some insight um, into, I guess, you know, my my philosophy and what, what I come with for, for women. But, yeah, I love, I love doing what I do and I love supporting women and I wouldn't do anything else. And... So proud to come on and share my story with you. That brings us to the end of today's episode. An insightful conversation with the remarkable Mayette. Her journey in the birth space has been nothing short of extraordinary and I am so grateful to have had the opportunity to delve into her experiences and expertise. 
It was pretty clear to both Mayette and I that there is just too much to cover for one episode. So if you have any questions or specific topics you would like us to cover in a future episode, I invite you to share them via the PBA Instagram or email. I hope today's episode gives you a deeper understanding of the world of home birth and the invaluable role a midwife can play during this transformative journey. Mayed has highlighted the power of personalized care and empowering women to embrace the birthing process with confidence and trust. Lastly, if you appreciate our work on PBA, we would kindly request your support by leaving a rating on your podcast platform. Your feedback will help us reach more women and continue to provide meaningful content. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you all next week for another episode of Positive Birth Australia.